Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. It is without any further ado that I'm going to invite our brother Ken Hardesty up. I'm not used to saying this, but good evening. It's good to, it's good to be out with you this evening. And, and one disclaimer, I, I suppose I need to give a disclaimer. This is my bedtime. This is the time I'm normally going to bed. So um, I'm hoping my mind will stay alert and my mind will stay awake as we, as we look into God's Word tonight. But it's so good to see you guys. It's so good to see your faces again. It, it's always a joy for us when we look forward to coming down to uh, Florida and knowing we'll have these times with you. And so we are very, very thankful for all of you. We pray for you all, all the time. You're in our prayers at least a couple of times a week. By name, your names are before the Lord as we remember you. Some of you are before the Lord every day as we think of you and know the struggles that some of you have gone through. And so we're, we're thankful for the Lord and for what He does in our lives. Turn with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and that's where we're going to start this evening. We're not going to stay there very long, but that is where we're going to begin. I have been doing a personal study, and now it comes into messages little by little as I'm doing a personal study on, on the questions that the Lord asks throughout the Gospels. You know, the, and the arrangement of those questions will differ through the Synoptic Gospels and through the Gospel of John. They'll, obviously, they'll be different um, chronologically the way some of these questions will come up. But I've been doing a personal study on the, on the questions that the Lord Jesus asks. And I think that's a good study. I think it's important to hear the questions that are on the Lord's mind as he presents the truths to, to men and women. But here, the very first question that John asks, and we're not, again, we're not going to stay here, and, and our study is not going to be on the questions of the Lord, but we're going to start there. The very first question that the Lord asks in the Gospel of John is found in verse 38. So we're going to read from 35. And again, this is a very familiar passage to all of us in this room. We've studied it many, many times over the course of our, our walk with the Lord. And this is the context here of this portion of the narrative is dealing with, with John the Baptist. And it's dealing with how that uh, John is baptizing in the Jordan and men and women are coming to him. And then the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes. And you remember the proclamation, of course, that the Lord makes concerning, I mean, that John makes concerning our Lord is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he makes that proclamation. He has, he has seen the Spirit of God descend as a dove and light upon him, giving him witness that he was told that this would be the one whom the Spirit of God would descend on, remain on, would be the Son of God in the sense of that Son of God terminology, of course, goes all the way back in Scripture to the time of David and to others. So it, the Son of God narrative there seems to point to the idea that this is the King. This is the new king. Behold the Lamb of God, the Son of God, this king that was coming. And then we see um, him again proclaiming him. And the witnesses, uh, the John, John the Baptist, Baptist's uh, disciples are around when he sees the Lord coming and he proclaims again, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we begin at verse 35. And again, the next day, John stood 
with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, he, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples who heard him speak, and, follow, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to be translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So the first question that the Lord asks in this narrative of John is, what do you seek? Or even more properly, because it's a present indicative tense, is what are you seeking? What is it that you are seeking? You are following after me. I've seen you come behind me. You heard the proclamation that John, of whom you have been a disciple, has now pointed you to me, and you are following after me. What is it that you are seeking? Now, it's interesting to us because we know as we go on in the narratives, both in the synoptic narratives and in the Gospel of John, that the disciples really did not comprehend all that was contained in that statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They did not grasp the truth of that till much later on, till after his death and resurrection and his ascension, when they began to, the Spirit of God descended in Pentecost, and they began to understand what he really did in Calvary, at Calvary, what the, the cost of Calvary and what it secured for them. And the truth and the reality of those things, the Spirit of God began to reveal to them. So here, as they're walking along the road, what is it that you're seeking? And I've often wondered, what was it that they were seeking? What was it that caused them to follow? Well, certainly they were following John the Baptist, who was saying, this is the one, follow him. I must decrease and he must increase. And they began to follow Jesus. What was it that they were seeking? Well, what was it that all of the disciples of John were seeking? What was it that the nation was seeking and looking for? What were they looking for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? They asked of John. Are you that prophet? They were looking for the Messiah who would come and would deliver the people of Israel, who would defeat the enemies, who would defeat Rome and set up his kingdom. And these disciples were looking for the Messiah, looking for the one who would bring deliverance to them. And so when we look at this narrative, and we see that they began to follow him, they're seeking after the Messiah, they're seeking for his deliverance. They're seeking for the independence that they could have for Israel and all the covenantal blessings that were promised to them to be restored, to have Israel again as a sovereign nation who had been under the heel of Rome for all of these years that they can remember. And for years and years preceding that, they desired, again, sovereignty for their nation, a victory of Rome, the coming of the kingdom of God, I think is what they were looking for. The Jewish people have always been intimately and by divine design connected to the land. We are going to talk about over the course of our times together, we're going to talk a little bit about this war that is going on in Israel. 
We're going to look about Israel and their connection that they have to the land in which they dwell. We're going to look about the prophecies that have come up. And as you've been looking at this war, and you've been contemplating, as, as has already been mentioned, you've been thinking about how do these things fit into prophecy? Well, we recognize, don't we all, that prophecy as we try to interpret it is, is certainly not an exact science. The Lord knows all that's going on. He knows the plan. He knows how he's placing all the pieces together. And anytime we're dealing with wars that are going on in Israel, it is setting up a stage. It is setting up an environment by which the Lord will place all of those pieces in the puzzle into place in order to bring about the purpose of this age and the purpose of the finishing of this age. Now, all of us in this room are living in this age because God designed it to be so. We are not living in this day just by happenstance. The Lord placed you and I here in this time, as Hebrews would tell us, he's the one who, who created the worlds, or that little word, worlds there is the word eon, it means times. He's the one who has created the time. Placed everything in order in his time, and according to his purpose. It, and you and I are here seeing the developing of all of these things that are perhaps happening Certainly we are living in the last days, we know that, because the last days began with the, at, the, uh, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, at the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament makes it clear that we are living in the last days. But we are drawing closer even to the culmination of those last days of this earth. And I believe that, and you believe that, don't you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that we are this much closer every day to the coming of the Lord? And the things that we see happening around us convince us. And we see, and we, are, and we are very much distressed at seeing the suffering that is going on in Israel. We're seeing the suffering that was going on in Ukraine. We see the suffering that is going on through these wars. And our hearts ache for that. But our hearts also recognize that God is at work. He's at work. He's moving forward. He never retreats. He's moving forward in his purpose and his plan to bring about the culmination of this age and the beginning of the new age that is to come. And that is what we kind of want to look at as we move forward through the course of these studies. We're going to look at, now how many of you, and this won't come today, it probably won't even come Hopefully we'll get to it on Sunday and you know, we're going, we've got 20 minutes left tonight and we're going to start a, a whole bunch of different things. But how many of you, when you began to see this war unfolding, went to Psalm 83? How many of you went to Psalm 83? Do you, hey, we have Dennis went to Psalm 83. Some of you have gone to Psalm 83 to see just how this fits. Then some of you have gone to, to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Some of you have gone to Ezekiel 37. Some of you have gone to different places. And we want to show over the course of our times together how that there appears to be several prophecies out of, out of Psalm 83, out of Psalm 30, uh, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 that all fit together, one happening before the other's happening. And we'll see that as we, as we move forward. But as I, as I said just a few moments ago, if we want to understand, if we want to understand Israel today, and we want to understand where Israel is today, 
and how things are flowing into place today with all of their dreams and all of their anticipations and all of their desires to understand their tremendous success since 1948 and, and the awfulness of the war that even took place in 1948 and the wars that have gone on since that time. But all their successes and all the disappointments that Israel has had over the course of these last 50 years. There have been many wonderful things that have happened in Israel where the deserts had bloomed again, where we see all of the promises coming to place in Israel. But there have also been many disappointments. They are not living in a land that is at peace. They have never been living in a land that is in peace. As Ezekiel 38 would indicate, they must be before that battle takes place. They are not living in a time of peace. But if we want to understand Israel today, to understand the way these people respond, the Jewish people respond to the challenges that they have faced through the years, you must understand the biblical narrative you must understand Israel's connection to the land. They are so intimately connected to the land. Nothing could change that. Nothing could change that. All the way down through the history of Israel, there is this connection to the land. To these people were committed the oracles of God. To these people were, were committed the they're the partakers of the heavenly calling. These people are, are special people that God has set aside. And the people that the covenants of, that God made with Abraham, the covenants that he confirmed through Isaac and Jacob, the covenant that he made with, with David and Moses, the covenants that he's made with these people. Oftentimes, those covenants are directly related to the land. Right? It's related to the land. And so, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and the Torah, when you read through, I, I, I was going through circling every time it mentioned the land, the land, the land, the land. Multiple, multiple, multiple times you see it. And you, you can just read over it if you're not careful. But over and over again, it is... The land. It is the land. The Word of God tells us the story of these people, these chosen people, and it's told through who they are, what their passions were. This whole narrative from Genesis on through the end of, of Revelation is all about these people. Even when you get to the end, right? When you get to the end of Revelation, it's always going to be about the land. <laughs> they land. And one day they will be in the land. One day God will restore to them everything that was promised to them all the way through their time. You remember from the beginning, and if we go back to, to Genesis chapter 12, a portion of Scripture that you all know, let's turn there to Genesis chapter 12 again. And this is the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God tells Abraham, God tells Abraham to your people. He says now in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord, had, the Lord God had said to Abram, 
get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go to a land that I will show you. Do you think the promise of God made to Abraham back there in Genesis chapter 12 still holds true? Do you believe that God still blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse Israel? Yeah, I believe so too. I believe so too. And when he called Abraham out, it was to a specific place where he was to go. He was coming out, his father Terah came out of Ur the Chaldees. And if you go to Joshua 24, you recognize that, that his father was an adulterer. That, not adulterer, an idolater. <laughs> they're, they're, they sound the same, don't they? He was an idolater, and he came out of the land of, of Ur the Chaldees, which would later on become that great nation of Babylon, right? They came out of that idolatrous nation, and they came, and God delivered them out of Haram. He calls Abram again out of Haram, and he sends him to the land that he had promised them. And in that land, there were nine other nations that were in that land at the time. And when it gets down, when we get down to Joshua, there's nine nations there that he has to he has to deal with that are in the land that God gave to them. So he gives this land, he gives this land to Abram. He makes Canaan his home. Abram leaves Haran. He goes up to Canaan and he makes Canaan his home. And then from time to time, in times of famine, in times of struggle, he'll he'll get wet feet in a sense and run down to Egypt. And every time he's in Egypt, he gets himself in trouble and he comes back to Bethel. He comes back to the place of the altar. He comes back into, into what would become the nation of Israel. He comes back to the land. And in that land, wells are dug. In that land, as, as history goes along for the nation, Wells are dug, caves are bought, land is purchased, and they began to make an attachment to that land that God would one day give to them. And he, he wavered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And then we remember the stories and we say, well, wait a minute. He seemed to have wavered quite a bit. But we recognize that in the final analysis, he trusted God. That God would do what he said he would do. And so the land, beginning with Abram, was given to them. And that develops a whole, all of the scripture from that little seed that comes in, in Genesis chapter 12. We see him called. We see in chapter 15 that God makes this covenant with him. And he believed in him and he credited it to him for righteousness. He looked toward the heavens and he said, count the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land. The connection always goes back to the land. To give you this land. And then you remember in, in chapter 14 where he where he meets Melchizedek, 
where he, he's confronted with Melchizedek after the defeat of those kings. And he comes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek comes out bringing refreshment of bread and wine, and he is the king of Salem, which would later be known as Jerusalem, in this land that Abram had been given. And when we get to chapter 22, when God calls him to go back with Isaac, his son, where does he call him to go? Back to the hills and the mountains of Moriah. And we've talked about this here, here in the past. He calls him to go back, but you notice how specific the Lord is when he calls him back, when he calls him to go to Moriah, because Moriah is in the area right where he met Melchizedek. So he's familiar with this area. He's familiar with the place. And the Lord says, I will show you the place. You go to the place. And over and over in chapter 22, he mentions the place, the place, the place. And when Abraham gets close, he sees the place afar off. And God leads him right to that place in that range of, of mountains of Moriah, where you had Acra, where you had Moriah, where you had, where you had uh, the other mountain ranges, Moriah. And you had outside of the city walls, which have become the city walls of Jerusalem, on that same mountain range is where Calvary, the Mount of Calvary was, where Golgotha was. And I am a believer that, that when the Lord called him to the place, it wasn't where the, the temple now rests, or did rest, and where the Dome of the Rock is now. I believe that the place where he offered Isaac up was the very place where the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up one day. He made it specific. I want you to go to this place. And you remember when you look at the narrative in chapter, in chapter 22, when you look at the narrative in chapter 22, and let me turn there quickly. The, the Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. The name of the place where he offered up Isaac will be the place called the Lord will provide. And notice the terminology. It's, it's, it's significant, isn't it? He didn't say the place where God has provided because he did provide. Isaac came off the altar, the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see in Isaac all the way to the altar, all the way to the obedience to the Father, being bound and put on the altar. All of a sudden, Isaac becomes a picture of you and I. He's taken off the altar and a ram is put in our place and dies and the Lord provides. And in this place, the Lord will provide. Not has provided, will provide. And I believe he's pointing specifically to a time when the Lord Jesus Christ would come to that very place and he would offer himself. The Lord is the one who will provide in that place. Now we've got Jerusalem. We've got Israel, the land that he was giving to him, to, to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem, where the Son of God would one day be given up and offered up in the place, part of the land that God was giving unto them. Abraham says, the place is the place where the Lord will provide. And you remember, as we go through the narrative, we don't have time to, to look at every place where, this, where the terminology, you can do that on your own. Go through and circle every place where it says in the land, the land, the land, where he's speaking of the land. When you get to the end of this this introductory book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, when you get to the end of it, what do we remember? What do we see at the end? We see the death of Joseph 
And we see him make, well, let's, let's go there. He, he makes a request. He makes more of a request. He makes a command. He tells them at the, at the end of, of the book of Genesis, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which you, he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to, jo- and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and bring you up. Carry my bones with you. When you go up, carry my bones with you. And if you go to Joshua 24, you'll find out that that is exactly what they did. They brought Joseph's bones out and they buried him in the land. In the land that was promised. Israel has an has a amazing connection to the land. Exodus shows us this great people. We move into the book of Exodus in the Torah as we're working through the Torah. You, you get into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, now, this family that came down, that was living in Goshen, the family of Jacob and his sons living in the land of Goshen. By the time you get to Exodus, it is a mighty people. Two million strong in all likelihood. A great multitude of people that it gave Pharaoh fright at night. He said, look at all of these mighty people now. Uh, you know, we better do something because if our enemies come against us, they may join with our enemies. And when they join with our enemies, what will they do? Fight against us in order that they may go up. That they may go up. Do you notice that? Did you ever notice that phraseology? He says it, that they may go up. I, I can read it for you here, I think. That, that they may go up. He says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happens in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Where were they going up to? The land. It was never out of their hearts and minds. It had always been perpetuated in their minds that one day they would go back to their land. They were slaves here, but Moses came. The deliverer came in the person of Moses to bring them out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land, to take them out of bondage. And we know all the beautiful typology that we see here, all the beautiful typology that we see in in the deliverance that takes place. But it was to bring them out of bondage with wealth plundered from the Egyptians into the promised land. But they failed, didn't they? They failed. They came out. They came through a great deliverance. The Red Sea opened up and they marched through a great army. Pharaoh's army was destroyed in in uh, in that sea. And they were out on the other side and they sang and rejoiced that God had given them a great deliverance, the song of Miriam, and everything was going great. And they were all singing and rejoicing and then it didn't happen so nice. Things started to get hard for them. And they began to be distressed in the wilderness. And then they wanted to go back to Egypt. And they remember when, when the spies were sent in. And they came back, oh, it's a terrible place. Man, it's a, it's a beautiful place. We saw all the great things that were there, but, but we are like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can go in and conquer this. And for 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness. 
God providing for them. But did God give up? No, that generation died in the wilderness because of unbelief, Hebrews tell us, tells us. They did not believe that God was able to bring them out and bring them in. They, they saw him bring them out, but they did not believe he was strong enough to bring them in to the land. And for 40 years they wandered around until that generation was gone. And then the next generation rose up to bring them where? To the land that God had promised them. And that whole narrative of all that stuff that was happening to them in the wilderness certainly became a lesson to the Jewish people going forward that things were going to be hard. You think they, they still believe that when they were going through the, the late 1800s and all the pogroms down in, in, that were happening in Russia in the early 1900s, which we'll look at when we get to, do you think they thought life is pretty hard for us? Life has always been hard. They had that one great time of the kingdoms and a great time in the land of Israel after Joshua. But for thousands of years, they have struggled. And well, I'm getting way ahead of myself. We ought not to get way ahead of myself, especially when I've only got four minutes left. And then you get down to Joshua. And he tells the story of entering the land, where they must now fight to enter the land. And there is something that is very interesting. When we get to the, to the idea of the Zionists and the Zionist movement that came up in the 1800s, this great Zionist movement, they were hoping, and I'm probably going to repeat myself when I get to that portion, maybe next, next week or next whatever, that they were trying now to develop a new Jew. A new Jew. A Jew that was like unto the men that went in and conquered the land. A Jew like was like unto the Maccabee Jews who had fight and determination in them. And not the Jew that had been scattered and ended up being, I hate to use this term, but they were, they were fearful all the time. And underneath the suppression and persecution all the time that they became less than less than the strong and mighty army that God once had. But we'll see as we move, move through the history of Israel and the, and the things that God is doing. And so they went into the land and there were seven different nations occupying the land when he got in. And God gave them victory. And he finally ends up dividing the land between all the people. And we don't have time to go through all that narrative, but it was always connected to the land. And then you get to the time of the judges. And we recognize the time of the judges. That was, a, that was a difficult time for Israel, wasn't it? They would do really well for a while, and then they would fall away into sin, fall away into the nations, fall away into different patterns. And then they would be, the enemies would come against them and they would overcome them and they would cry out to God and God would bring a judge and a deliverer. And that cycle, as we know, repeated itself over and over and over and over through the time of the judges while they were in the land. But then the people wanted a king. They wanted a king. Like the nations around us, we want a king to go before us into battle. 
We want a king. We're tired of these judges. We're tired of this theocracy, if you will, that the judges were. We're tired of that. We want a king who can reign over us and can lead us into battle. Well, here's Saul. Let's see how Saul works out for you. Not so well. But God had his eyes on a little shepherd boy. He had his eyes on, if I can say that reverently, God had a purpose and plan through it all, on a little shepherd boy. And when Saul failed, God was looking at the heart of this young man Saul. Not on the outward appearance, but on his heart. And he raised this one up who became a mighty warrior in Israel and delivered Israel from all its enemies and established Israel in the land. Finally, established in the land. The extent of His kingdom expanding the kingdom. And they were, for a period of time, in peace. That's what David brought. And of course, we know what David wanted to do. He wanted to build a temple for the living God. He, he had brought the, temp, the tabernacle back. He had brought the tabernacle and pitched it out. And we know the struggles that happened with that too. We don't need to go into all these details for your scholars of the Word of God. But he, the, the tabernacle was there and he had a desire. He's living in this paneled house of his own. He says, and look at God's living in that tent out there. I want to make him a and God would not allow him to make it because he was a man of war. And he shed blood. But your son after you, the son of his error, the son of his sin and failure, the son, well, of course, the son in that relationship was taken by God, but his son of Bathsheba would become the next king of Israel and rule over Israel in a great time of peace. And the, and the land of Israel, no prosperity that it had not ever known before. Nations would come to Israel just to see the glory and the splendor of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon, to hear his words, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then when you read through the book of, of Song of Solomon, and you read through the book of not Song of Solomon, when you read through the Proverbs and you read through the Ecclesiastes and you begin to see that Solomon's mind was beginning to waver a bit. And we know that he was influenced by all the, the treaties he had made with all the nations and all the wives that he had and all the concubines that he had. And he was in violation of God's word and his purpose for his life. And, it, and he was told and it was warned that they would lead you astray, that these strange wives would lead you astray to their idols. And so he built idols. He built the high places outside of Jerusalem for, this, for his wives. And then he was worshiping there as well with his wives and the kingdom of Israel was at a point of collapse. And it would happen in the dividing of the kingdom. His son, because Solomon and the buildings that he did in building that great, beautiful temple in, in Jerusalem, that big, beautiful temple in Jerusalem, he, 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 as he wavered away, and all the people of Israel were coming down to that temple three times a year, plus for the festivals and the feasts and for Passover, coming down to, into the temple site. 
But now, he, in order to do all that, he had to levy heavy taxes on the people. And the people were not getting, they were not happy with Solomon near the end of his reign. And when, Jer when Rehoboam took over for his father, he, you remember the counsel of his friends, the, oh, you think my dad was laying heaviness on you? You wait to see what I'm going to do. And it caused the division of the kingdom. And they called, the, the northern tribes called Jeroboam away, brought him back, set him up as king, and the kingdom was divided. The land was divided. The land was divided. Israel has always had a connection to the land. And now the land was divided. And we will have to stop there. And we'll try to pick up from there on Sunday. Because we move from there now into what happened to Israel in the captivities that came and how the Lord was at work in all of these things and down through the ages. And hopefully when we get to through some of those things, we will be able to transition from there into what is happening in Israel today. And the, and the things that, that God has... Because it's, it's funny. Funny? I don't know if funny is the right word. It's interesting. As you look at the history of Israel, not only down through biblical history, but after, after biblical history, and through the, the Jews scattered all over the world, and seeing how God worked, and you see God's fingerprint over so much of what happened with the people of Israel to bring them back. To bring them back, and as Don mentioned in his prayer, that they've they've actually they actually came back in a in a state of unbelief. But you know, right now, that there's there's so many Orthodox Jews that are moving back to Israel that the the balance of the civil and the religious is balancing out, and there's becoming a great revival in Israel among the Jewish people, believing, praying, going to the Western Wall, praying and praying for the Messiah to come and to, to bring the peace and deliverance that they all long for. So although they've come back, they've come back in unbelief. I think we're beginning to see the transition that takes place in, in Ezekiel 37. We're seeing the breath breathed into them. And we're going to see that as we, as we move forward, Lord willing, over the course of our times together. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the way that you have worked in this world to bring about redemption. We're thankful, Father, for Israel. We're thankful, Father, that through them, through this nation, through their heritage, You brought into this world Your Son, born of the seed of David, born into this world in order to redeem us. And so, Father, we are thankful for what You have done. We're thankful, Father, for the history that you lay out so clearly to us in this diary of, his, of Israel's life. And Father, as we look forward to seeing this in the, in the days to come, we pray that you would bless and encourage and strengthen our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.